just the level of like dismissal and the expectation that you are going to put yourself through literal hell just so that you can have a smaller body. It's just, it's so absurd. Facts do not have opinions. Just don't let perfection be the enemy of the good. Self-love is really about self-respect and acceptance. Hey friends, this bonus podcast is ad-free, but I'd love for you to support some of our prior sponsors who I genuinely use and love. I'm going to name a few for you, but you can always go to the show notes at realeverything.com to get links and discounts for any sponsors that you hear about on our shows. Check out butcherbox.com slash wholeview to use code wholeview for one free pack of bacon for the life of your membership plus $10 off. Go to dameproducts.com and use code wholeview for 15% off site-wide. Looking to hire? Get $75 sponsored job credit at indeed.com slash wholeview. Check out my favorites at paleovalley.com slash thewholeview and use code thewholeview15. Get my favorite hair care at vegamore.com slash wholeview and use code wholeview for 20% off your whole order. Last but not least, you can support my woman-owned small business at beautycounter.com slash stacytoff and code cleanforall30 for 30% off your first order and free shipping through August 14th, 2022. Welcome back to The Whole View, part two of Weight Loss for Kids with Kelsey. Hi, Kelsey. You're still here. Hello. I'm still here. <laughs> I'm ready for more. If you haven't yet listened to part one, please go back and do that first. That's episode 21 of season three. I'm Stacey Toth of Real Everything, and I'm here each week to dive deeper into how we can find happiness and health inside and out through self-love, body positivity, and discovering new ways to be our best selves. And I'm joined this week by Kelsey Snelling of KelseyAmeliaSnelling.com, who is working on FatCampDoc.org, also known your project as Camp Shame, which we laid the framework and foundation for last week. So like I said, please go back and listen to that if you haven't yet. Mm -hmm. And your film is exploring the lucrative and exploitative world of fat camp. Before we get started, two things, listeners. This podcast is for general education purposes only, and we always suggest seeking appropriate treatment with licensed professionals. And I want to give you a warning. The show will discuss triggering topics such as eating disorders, sexual assault, coercion with caretakers, addiction, self-harm, public humiliation, and weigh-ins. So I'm sorry, not sorry for the pun, but the topics are heavy. And the good news is that both Kelsey and I have made tremendous emotional progress and are happy adjusted adults. And we're going to share more in terms of what some of those takeaways are and what we can do in a positive way, I promise. Before we do that, though, we have got to actually address this Bloomberg article that I referenced and a lot of the work that you've unearthed on Camp Sheen in particular. I'm going to take quotes from the Bloomberg article so that we can kind of address each of them. And I found these from when you first sent that article to me. And Mm -hmm. I read it and it was like I was 
I, it felt like I was reading something that I had written myself. You know, it was, there was so yeah. much of that that really hit me. And so I want to share some of these quotes to talk about, you know, what you've heard from other people as it relates to these and what each of our experiences was, because I think this is the crux of why fat camps and weight loss for children are so problematic. Mm. Yeah. You ready? I'm ready. Okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with a doozy here. The quote <laughs> is, if they didn't come in with an eating disorder, they left with them. A former counselor recalls wealthier campers bribing his working class colleagues and the odd smuggled cookie morphed into a proper black market. A Snickers bar could cost as much as $25 when supply was low. I'll say my personal experience was $20 for an oatmeal cream pie. So the ah! price the price went up as the as the years went on. Wow. Yep. Yep. As a camp counselor reading these, how does that hit? Well, the funny thing is this whole like black market food swap I did not have experience with that as a counselor. I knew nothing about this. And in fact, a lot of people my year that I've spoken with were like, I don't think that was a thing. So there were certainly people who would smuggle in, like their grandma would send them Tootsie Rolls stuffed into like a tampon. There was a lot of that going on. But there wasn't this whole black market situation. I feel like based on the people that I've spoken with, that's a very 90s tradition. <laughs> well, I was there in the 90s, so I guess that's yes. what it is. Yeah. I, I mean, I can't even begin to unpack how emotionally messed up it is and how confusing it would be for a child's mind to oh, yeah. send them to a place of restriction and, you know, keeping this from them and right. then sending it in a package like this, just if let's leave the black market aside, the fact that right. people were getting Tootsie Rolls and tampons is yeah, because as I mentioned in part one, like they, they checked your packages. So you mm -hmm. had to, your parents had to be willing not just to send it to you, but to smuggle it to you. Like it yeah. just blows my mind. And, and I say parents and you said grandparents, uh, let me be clear. Like the things that were coming in were most often not from like a friend who was helping you out. It was from right. the people who signed you up for the camp to begin with. Right. And I, I want to dive into this idea that if they didn't come with an eating disorder, they left with them. So mm -hmm. food, black market of food is in and of itself disordered eating. <laughs> let's just mm -hmm. put that, let's just put that there. I mean, you mentioned laxatives, you mentioned enemas, I mentioned mm -hmm. purging. I know that I, I was bulimic in my teen years and I learned to purge at Camp Shame. And so... It, it It is interesting to me to relate this back to a quote we had on the show a couple of weeks ago that if you are a per, like a person of size, those behaviors are healthy for you. They're, they're dieting. They're good Ugh. for you. Yeah. But if you are a thin person with the same behaviors, it is an eating disorder and, and you need medical attention and care. Yeah. 
And so that is why people had so many eating disorders as they were leaving camp because it was, Mm -hmm. that is considered diet culture in a positive way, which is just heartbreaking to say out loud. Totally. When you, when you had campers come to you, I remember the arts and crafts cabin, Mm -hmm. we had such limited access to it because it wasn't exercise, right? It was very limited in terms of, you know, you couldn't just decide that you wanted to do arts and crafts. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm kind of interested at this idea of the intimacy, intimacy that you could develop with some of these campers and the the art that you were seeing come out in their emotions. And I mean, what do you even do with that? Like you said, it's, you have no outlet to go to, for example, your supervisor or, you know, cause I remember reflecting back on the camp and being like, why didn't someone tell my parents that I needed help? Why right. didn't, why didn't anybody? Cause from my parents' perspective, they had no idea. Right? right. And from the camp counselor's perspective, they don't know who to talk to or what to do about it. It's not like you have campers, parents information to call them and say, Hey, I yeah. think your daughter might need therapy. Like, you know, I, it's, uh, yeah. Anyway, I'm, I'm well, curious another what that was thing like for you. I just kind of want to add to that is as counselors, we had very limited information period. So I had campers with all kinds of needs. Like I had a camper who was autistic and they weren't allowed to tell me that she had autism. I had a camper who had just recovered from chemotherapy and they weren't allowed to tell me. Stop. So yeah. And like, forget if they had known eating disorders or if they had attempted suicide, I was not allowed. I was not privy to any of that information. So just saying, Oh my we gosh. were not working with much. <laughs> I'm just yeah. like the the idea that someone would have been sent there after their body was bottling cancer, and then to know what those conditions were—it's just wow. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I found out from another camper. That was yeah. It was it was a mess, but I mean that's such a great question. I wasn't even I wasn't expecting to talk about arts and crafts. I love this question because. <laughs> I, I loved that part of the job. I was very intentional as the arts and crafts teacher to make it very unstructured because a lot of the counselors would come up with really specific projects or, you know, they would want their kids to do a really specific thing. A lot of them were very structured as far as like, cause we also had, I was general arts and crafts, but there was also ceramics and tie dye and silk screening. And then, you know, there were other activities, there was like dance class and all of these activities were very structured. And so when kids came to my cabin, I would always have a project prepared. And then I'd say, you can do this project or you can do whatever the hell you want, because this is like the one half hour of the day where you have any kind of control over what you do. And a lot of them really loved arts and crafts because of course it was a physical break. I had this great cabin that had like a little porch on it. So you were sitting in the shade, you weren't out and exposed in the heat like you were for most of the day and kids could just come and relax. And I feel like a lot of them really did open up to me. And the beautiful thing about it was that, you know, a lot of kids at fat camp, they're not basketball stars they're not going to be professional swimmers. 
And the arts and crafts area was kind of the only safe space for them to explore something that was not physical, that was unrelated to their physical performance. And I thought that that was so important to have at a camp like this. You want kids to be able to shine in a way that's unrelated to their body and their weight. So I really appreciated being in that role. And it was, it was a lot like a therapist's office. And oftentimes I wasn't the therapist. Often it was just kids getting together and talking to each other about how they were feeling about camp. So yeah, it felt like a really like safe space for them in a lot of ways. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I totally agree with the idea of finding an outlet for people to express themselves creatively that has nothing to do with, you know, the, the way they look. And yeah. yeah, I can, I can definitely see that. Okay. Are you ready to, I'm ready for anything. <laughs> okay. So we're going to move out of eating disorders into addiction. So I know we've mm. given trigger warnings. I just, I think it's kind of easier to understand disordered eating, eating disorders. And I know we talked about, you know, a, a lot of that last week. Mm -hmm. So this week we're going to dive into some of the heavier stuff and starting with addiction. So the quote from the article is weed was no longer the contraband drug of choice. The article notes some campers were arriving with bags of amphetamines, tranquilizers, and diuretics. So I know we talked about diuretics and, uh, you know, we put that in the eating disorder category. The idea that children, children believe mm -hmm. that they need amphetamines. So if you think about this from the perspective of not just drug abuse, but also in a lot of the cases of people that I know, at least, this is a way to lose weight. And it is, again, like an eating disorder seen as a positive thing. Oh, right. well, if I take a speed-like drug, I can exercise more. My metabolism will increase. I'll lose weight. Mm -hmm. It's worth it. It's a good thing. Mm. Did you have experience with people having contraband drugs of choice other than the, mm. the laxative your sister, you said, right? Right. So there were definitely some laxatives going on. My girls, my 13 year olds didn't, I don't really remember there being issues with them. However, the older girls, my sister was in charge of the older, the oldest girls. I think it was like 17 through 22, 16 through 22, something like that. They had a little more freedom. They could leave camp once in a while. You know, they were older they had some issues with drugs. I want to say there was like an Adderall situation. I don't know how Adderall helps you lose weight, but I feel like there was someone selling Adderall. And as I remember it, they were going to kick her out. And then instead they, I swear they like promoted her to a counselor at some point. She was a camper. Then they ran out of staff and they like, I might be misremembering this, but I'm pretty sure that happened. <laughs> she became a counselor. What's, I mean, what, 
gets me about that is like we're we're both kind of like shaking our head and you're like maybe I'm misremembering the whole thing is constantly I'm like is was that real was it was I was there yeah and because it's so ridiculous yes yeah so I mentioned in part one that I became very sick at camp one of the years and I had to go to an off-site doctor's visit for Mm -hmm. that diagnosis and in the conversation that I had with you, there was a celebrity's daughter who was in the room with me mm-hmm. and she was older than I was. And I remember vividly because I was so young and so naive that when the doctor told her that she was detoxing, that that's why she was Ugh. sick, that I just, I was like, from what? You know what I like in my, in my brain, like I could not compute what that meant. And it wasn't until kind of like talking to other people or getting a little bit older and then realizing, um, that she had been so sick, like I had been in order to get taken off campus that instead of putting her in rehab, which is what, you know, she really needed with therapeutic support and additional medication and, you know, whatever else it was that she needed. So for example, someone going through a detox like that would probably need an IV and proper fluids. I can guarantee you us, us campers were not getting proper fluids. We were not getting, you know, those kinds of things to support the detox process. Like the, the, Looking back, I'm like, what was this doctor in town doing? That he was constantly, oh you know, these campers would come in two to a room and, and then tell them, you've got walking pneumonia, you're detoxing. Okay, go back to camp. Like, mm-hmm. I I can't process what that relationship was either. Like, I've never looked into, you know, what was that place that I went? <laughs> was it even a real doctor? Yeah. Like, I don't know. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know any of that. Um, and when I was talking to my parents after about it, like they were not given the full picture of the information from the camp either. Right. Like their, their recollection of, you know, my being sick is not the same as my lived experience. And I am quite sure that that's because they weren't being given a picture from the camp about my condition and, how they were or were not taking care of me during that time. I mean, and you're not the only one. Mm-hmm. So yeah. many people like I, I talked to someone who like her son broke his leg and they didn't tell the parents stop or like some guy fell off of like the road or maybe it was a counselor fell off of like the ropes course, like out of a tree and like, no one was informed. There was no medical personnel were called. I mean, this stuff was like constant all the time. People were getting hurt and parents were not notified. Well, it's interesting about the Bloomberg article, which is not, you know, what we're going to get into the details of today, but they do a really good job of explaining what that dynamic was from the people who owned the camp or who managed the camp and Mm -hmm. what limited resources they had to run the camp and how lucrative it was for the family that ran the camp, um, Mm -hmm. who then did not pour that money back into 
the camp and had ultimately fell apart from, you know, family feuds and financial issues and, and all kinds of stuff. And I think, you mm-hmm. know, knowing th- that dynamic later kind of helped me understand more about why it was so bad on the Oh, camp. yeah. You know, like, just nobody was there paying attention. And so this idea that there could be people who would break their leg or, you know, fall off a ropes course and not be attended to sounds ridiculous. That sounds preposterous. Like that does not sound believable. If my teenager was sent to camp and came back and told me that I would, I would be like, I mean, was that your perception or was that the reality? You know, like, what? That can't be right. It sounds ridiculous. But the, that's what I mean about that article was just so validating. Like, whoa, that's that yeah. was actually happening yeah and and then you interviewing oh, yeah. other people and hearing all of this stuff like we're all echo chambers that's not just you know our our brain being wrong you know it's not false memory no it's really exactly. not yeah okay so speaking of I think the the harder part and we've we've touched on this as we as we move away from addiction which in and of itself is also, I, I want to point out, a a mental health concern that needs mm-hmm. to be addressed and that, you know, has absolutely nothing to do with weight and to compare weight loss with addiction in any sort of comparison is undermining the absolute horror that can come from addiction problems. Mm-hmm. Having lost a family member to the the mental health effects of addiction and to have been someone who, you know, could be classified as addicted to food throughout different periods of my life. Like the two are not in the same realm. And it breaks my heart mm-hmm. that there are people who send children to a place to prioritize their weight loss over oh, prioritizing yeah you know, support for mental health and addiction problems. Totally. And it's not just one or two people, right? Like it's not a coincidence that I had this celebrity's daughter in the room with me because Mm -hmm. there are countless stories of these types of experiences there at camp. Yeah. And from what I have gathered from people that I've spoken with, as the years went on, Camps seemed to be a place where people sent their kids no matter what their problem was. If they were having behavioral issues, if they did have mental health issues, it was like, oh, we'll send them to Camp Shane. Hmm. It just, it doesn't make any sense. Okay. So with that said, we can then anticipate that the following quote would be something that we would sadly expect to hear or see as well, which is Mm. the number of kids with significant mental health issues had also started to increase. Several former employees say they remember girls stealing plastic knives from the dining room to cut their thighs. And twice a counselor had to buy pregnancy tests. Mm -hmm. So, I, I just, I have a hard time wrapping my brain around the fact that you had absolutely no training or preparation for identifying or asking people, because I'm, I'm in that world now with foster children who have mental health and trauma, and mm-hmm. 
you know, the training that I had to ensure and to be able to ask questions about safety, like, are you safe? Can you keep yourself safe? What does safety look Mm. like for you? Are you having suicidal thoughts? Do you want to hurt yourself? Have you hurt yourself? Do you have a plan to hurt yourself? Like there are so many different questions that were difficult to kind of like be able to ask in the beginning. And Mm. now as someone who is providing therapeutic care, I know that these are really what we need to be able to ask children so that they feel like we actually want to support them, that we're not just like Mm -hmm. ignoring or hiding under the rug. And I think, you know, that's one of the difficult things for us as adults is we're like, oh, this is, this is so awkward. I don't want them to assume that blah, 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 blah. But at the same time, like teenagers are just so desperate to be validated and seen and, and feel like someone cares about them. Even if mm-hmm. we know we care about them, right? Like even a normal teenager is just like, you know, mm-hmm. that's a difficult time of your life. And so to, to compound all these different traumas of, you know, feeling unconfident and, you know, uncomfortable in their own skin, more so than just a regular teenager, but because they've experienced, you know, discrimination and harm from their body to now hate their body so much that they are stealing plastic knives from a dining room to cut their thighs in their room yeah, or to engage in risk, risky behavior so that they needed a pregnancy test at camp. Like how are children, even children, let me remind you, how are children yeah. having access to do this? Why is nobody watching them? Yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> great question. I wish I knew the answer to that. Understaffed and undertrained is the answer there. Yeah. Yeah. But like, why so understaffed? It's, it's really sad because the owners of this camp with the money they have, I mean, they could have afforded a handful of professionals. They could have, they easily could have afforded to pay their staff at least four times as much and tried to actually work on retaining staff and training staff. And they just cut so many corners. I mean, to like, to an unsafe point. And I wonder how much of that was, yes, about, you know, making their own money, but also the inherent belief that I have is that it is because one does not value the life of the person that is the camper. Oh yeah. If one does not make efforts to keep them safe. Right. And so absolutely the owners themselves had to be fat phobic and putting stigma on the children that were there to care so little about their well being, Right. Like, or to convince themselves this is for your own good because above all else, the most important thing in your life is weight loss. Right. Yeah. Right. Oh, I've got plenty of stories about their fat phobia just seeping out Mm. all over the place, just in comments that they've made to campers, comments that they've made to staff. I had someone tell me, a staff member, that she was intentionally cut out of promotional videos because she was overweight. And David Ettenberg, the owner, decided that that was not a good example to set. So he nixed her from the promo video yeah it's unreal well especially because 
your story is a little unique and why you decided to go there. I think most people that I've spoken to who were counselors went because they thought it would be kind of a fun way to lose weight themselves and make money over the summer, right? Like, so yeah, most, oh, I had those thoughts too. Don't yeah. get me wrong. Most of the counselors in and of themselves are also thinking, oh, this will be a way for me to lose weight. So the expectation yeah. that all counselors be this perfect body role model is also like, what? Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, like what? Yeah. Uh, and I, I remember talking to a counselor at one point who said that they had off campus nights and that I think two or three times a week or something like that, they were allowed to leave campus. And mm-hmm. I, and I just remember like wide eyed, like, oh, what's that like? What do you do? Yeah. What do you eat? Where do you go? <laughs> you know, just like, uh. I mean, there were nights when I like, I will never forget the night that I dropped $50 at a McDonald's because I think of that now. And I'm like, how do you spend $50 at McDonald's? Well, in like one hour, but I did it. And it was my night off. And I was like, I need my chicken nuggets. I need my milkshake. I need my cookies. Like I actually gained weight at camp. I gained yeah. like five pounds throughout the summer because I binged so much. Yes, exactly. Because your body was starved so that when it had yeah. access to food, it did what it needed to do to survive, to create, totally. you know, to, to bring in the food that had the most you know, nutrients, macronutrients that it needed to survive mm-hmm. when you went back onto campus. Yep. Yeah. And, and there are studies after studies. There's, there's one, I can actually send it to you if you don't have it. I'll put a link in the show notes. We did, yeah. we did it and focused on it in a podcast a couple of years ago about they took a group of healthy men who had absolutely no disordered eating and, you know, high, high performance, mentally strong-willed, confident men. And then they put them in a calorie deficit and watched what happened to them over. <gasps> and it is exactly you like your behavior that you're describing going to McDonald's after and watching what happened to these men who were all mentally and physically well from Mm -hmm. simply putting them on a calorie deficit diet to what that did to them after and the the effects that it had long-term is just like the most impactful thing that I've read for diet culture in a long time because it's like you said it's always the fat person's problem like they're lazy they're this they're that whatever but then you look at we knew that these people were healthy physically and mentally we screened them we did all this kind of stuff and then we put them on a diet and this is what happens think about that from the perspective of Someone is already struggling. You put them on a diet. What's going to happen to them physically and emotionally from that? So I cannot wait to read that. It's super intense in terms and very clear research based. Yes, it's 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 a lot. So and like how many of us, all of us have gone on like some kind of binge Mm -hmm. episode and then you feel that tremendous guilt and you're Mm -hmm. like, why didn't I have the willpower? Because maybe because your body is dying. Yep. It's not about (laughs) willpower. It's about your body trying to survive. And yeah, absolutely. So that said, I think this leads us to one of the more difficult things it was for me to talk about again, because I hadn't talked about this publicly, especially with my parents, my family. And it was something that came up for me after I originally started sharing. So last episode, I shared the first post that I wrote kind of post our conversation and wanting to talk more about what diet culture had done in my life. And then 
this post was one that I just really felt called to talk about because of the harm that it had caused me and mm-hmm. my life. So I'm going to read the article from Bloomberg and then I'm going to read my personal experience and it's going to be, it's going to be intense listeners. I'm just going to, to, to warn you right now, but know that I'm okay and that many people have had this experience and we need to just, the compassion and empathy that you're going to feel, just try to remember that that is a feeling that we can help others with. And I, I want to, you know, kind of bring us along in a positive way, but it's important to understand what this negative self-esteem can do to our children. So Bloomberg says, sex, a fraught issue for any teenager, could be especially problematic at Camp Shane. Beyond the innocent rendezvous between kids, a male counselor led boys in pelvic thrusts towards the girl's side of the camp, and adult counselors regularly hooked up with underage campers, according to a half dozen campers from this period. Okay, let's let's set aside um, the absolute horror of underage sexual sex, sexual exploitation and coercion of campers having hookups with younger campers. I will say that I personally experienced sexual abuse. And the article goes on to mention another, I think it was the Bloomberg article, it might be a different one that I read about the experience of a camper who actually sued for sexual abuse, Camp Shane. Was that, mm-hmm. do you recall, was that in the Bloomberg article? or uh, that, that is mentioned in the Bloomberg okay. article, yeah. Okay. And so my sexual abuse was not from a counselor. My sexual abuse was from being pressured and shamed by a camper who made threats that if I didn't do what I was told in a public area so his friends could watch um, Mm -mm. during movie night under the stars, you know, I don't know what what I thought the threat was, then I don't know, dot, dot, dot. But feeling so much negative self-worth, I was convinced that that was what I had to do. Pressured and and shamed Mm -hmm. is the, is the only way I can way to describe it. So I want to read what I wrote about this in December of 2020. And the Instagram picture is a picture of me. I'm super cute. Looking back, I was so cute. You look so good. You look so cute. And you know, my jeans are huge on me because I've lost weight. And it's a picture (laughs) of a shorter, wider boy. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I am, I am hot stuff next you to are you're kid. the queen i am and i've put a middle finger emoji over his face <laughs> to protect the identity of this person who i i don't even know who they are anymore and here's what i wrote hi my name is stacy and i let this kid sexually abuse me in fat camp because i didn't love myself i've been overweight for as long as i can remember and spent a lifetime gaining and losing and regaining hundreds of pounds I wrote three best-selling paleo cookbooks and was still fat. I was a competitive athlete and was still fat. I work out several times a week, focus on nutrient density and anti-inflammatory foods, and I'm still fat. I've come to this peace in my body, knowing that the best I can do to honor and respect and love myself is to make decisions towards health. And what I look like doesn't effing matter. That's not easy and is something I still have to fight for sometimes. I know diet culture wants you to think health and weight are the same, but there's actually a lot of science showing that not only is the BMI chart more often wrong than right, yes, thin people can be unhealthy and overweight people can be healthy. 
The stigma, stress, and guilt of fat shaming is actually worse for someone than the weight itself. Yes, there's science for that. And it's because of this, like what happened to me, that I was sexually abused multiple times by multiple men in middle school and high school who said things like, who are you going to tell? No one would believe you. No one would believe that I'm interested in you. And I believed them because that's what society made me feel. So no matter who you are or what you look like, please remember you have the power to change this rhetoric, to advocate for others, and to have the same basic rights. Yes, those overweight are discriminated against without any protections under the law, ranging from health care to equal opportunity for jobs. Start by making a conscious decision to dump diet culture and start treating yourself and others with true love and respect we are all worthy of. Round of applause to you, Stacey. That was beautiful. I I cried when I read that last night. I, I cried a I lot. I mean, I cried preparing the notes for the show as well. I... I think there's a lot of things that I, you know, didn't address about my own personal traumas in life until Mm. I had a foster child who I was asking to work on their own trauma so deeply that I was like, I can't be a hypocrite and not deal with some of mine. And certainly I didn't recognize at the time that the reason that this was happening to me was because I didn't love myself. I, I like you, am one of those effervescent people who walk into a room and people would believe radiate confidence. But part of that is is a wall that I put up to protect this Mm. like vulnerable mush on the inside from the experiences that I've had. Mm -hmm. And this idea that, you know, people at camp were experiencing sexual abuse from counselors and from other campers and Mm -hmm. not feeling like there was a place to go to address this is horrifying. I mean, I'm Mm -hmm. just, I, I can't imagine how many people had experiences that needed serious attention that were ignored. Yeah, absolutely. Because I mean, really what Camp Shane is, is a walled in campus of kids who feel rejected in the real world. And it's so easy to take advantage of that. I think taking advantage is a a really good word. I think that parents were taken advantage of certainly, you know, there, there might have been parents who knew that things were less than ideal, but I don't think any parent would send their child paying the amount of money that they paid to a place yeah. that, you know, we, we can point to now as, as being so problematic, but you know, the parents were taken advantage of the campers were taken advantage of the counselors. I mean, these people are quitting not because they, you know, want to, but because mm-hmm. they have to, um, mm-hmm. for what they're witnessing. Yeah. So Kelsey, one of the things that I'm going to ask for a vulnerability trade on, mm-hmm. you you shared with me some information and bef- bef- before we kind of like fully wrap up and get into what can we do about it, I'm wondering if you're willing to be vulnerable in sharing more about what you've learned about yourself in this whole process, but also medical diagnoses. And I think that will also kind of bring us full circle in terms of the medical stigma 
that is associated with weight in general and how so many people's health is harmed by medical professionals not addressing things the way they need to and how this kind of relates to to your whole journey on this documentary about weight loss for kids and and fat camps. Yeah, sure. I feel like this this isn't nearly as vulnerable as you just were with me. No, it totally is. (laughs) I, I mean, this, so the documentary is about camp shame and our experiences there. And I'm asking you to dive into to something outside of that in a way that I do think very much ties to the entire culture idea in a way that also our listeners can understand your story and why not just as a counselor, but as a human being, this, you know, touches your life in such a very real way. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, so by now everyone knows I went to Camp Shane, I was starved, right? I also had a lot of body image issues growing up, which I feel like is pretty natural, but I definitely like in middle school and high school tried to do the restriction. I tried to do Weight Watchers. At the time, by the way, I was very thin. I was quite thin, but that doesn't matter when you have body dysmorphia. So, I mean, I remember doing like a diet in high school where I only ate cookies for like a week because I knew I couldn't control myself. I couldn't say no to cookies. So instead I cut out all of the other calories. So yeah, very disordered behaviors. And it's crazy that during all of this, I was an undiagnosed diabetic. I just this past year got a diagnosis of this rare form of diabetes. And I feel like it all kind of like ties in with the like the body image issues and the diet culture stuff. Because here, so, okay, let me take it back a little bit. When I was younger, I had a lot of issues with my energy levels. I remember going to the pediatrician in like kindergarten and my mom was like, it's just a regular checkup, no big deal. And then we get there and she tells the doctor, Kelsey gets home from school and she sleeps until dinner time, which is like 7 p.m. And this happens every day. And now that I'm an adult, I'm like, that is very abnormal for a child to come home at like 2 p.m. and sleep until 7 every day, like something is wrong. But I distinctly remember the doctor just going, oh, yeah, kids get tired. That's normal. For a lot of my childhood, I went to daycare for many, many years. And I would get off the bus at like 2 p.m. at daycare and we'd have snack time. And this was the 90s. So snack was like a fluff a nutter for like crackers with sugar, nothing substantial. And then I didn't get picked up until like 6 PM. And like regularly I would turn white. I would get like sweaty and hot. I'd be shaking so much that I couldn't walk. And every single time it was just the, the daycare teachers were like, Oh, we don't know what's wrong, but you're definitely not allowed to eat a snack. Cause you didn't bring enough for everybody. It was like that kind of environment. There was just like no dietary awareness. So yeah, I had all these crazy symptoms. I would binge a lot as a young kid. And here's where like the control stuff starts to come in is I always told myself because everyone around me was telling me you have to get control. This is your own fault. You got to stop doing this. And I can remember things like, 
like I was 10 once and I ate like two shopping bags of Halloween candy and I didn't feel sick. Or I'd go to a friend's house and we would split a bag of Hershey Kisses and she would have one and I would have the rest. And I mean, there were, there were crazy things. Like there was one time in middle school, I came home, I found a 10 inch frozen cheesecake in the fridge, in the freezer, and I ate it frozen like it was a cookie. I would eat like, my go-to was boxes of cake mix, like the Duncan Hines yellow cake mix. You just like mix that shit with some water, like the straight up powder. You mix it with water and oil and I would eat like two boxes of it. And my parents were a little concerned but like, they're not doctors. They tried. They took me to the doctor. My dad is a diabetic. So he would test my blood sugar once in a while. And it was always fine in the morning. We would always do a fasting blood sugar and it was always fine. So I continued to go to these doctors and they would say, I mean, it was just inexcusable. They'd say things like, like it was your fault. You have no control. And I feel like it really paralleled the experience of a lot of people who are in heavy bodies where you go to the doctor, they tell you, you know, this is all your fault. Look what you're doing to yourself. And there's zero examination of what's going on underneath. So this went on for like years and years and years. By the time I was out of college, a doctor finally suggested I get a glucose tolerance test, which is if you guys don't know this God awful test, it's like seven hours long or something. You take, you go in on an empty stomach, you drink this vial of just, well, vial syrup. It's like a sugary syrup. You wait for an hour, you test your blood, you drink another one. You do this like four times. You can't throw up or else the results get thrown out and you have to come back the next day. It's just God awful. And I do this test and they're like, okay, you definitely have diabetes. It's type two. We're going to put you on that form in. So this was when I was like 21. This may have been right after Camp Shane. And so for years and years and years, I was like, okay, I'm a type two diabetic. And I've lived all over the country and therefore have had dozens of doctors, primary care doctors, endocrinologists, nutritionists, dozens and dozens and not once did a medical professional tell me, like, this is an issue. You're young. You're not overweight. You're very active. Typically, type 2 diabetics are well into their 40s when they're diagnosed. A lot of times, it can be related to diet and exercise. And that wasn't true for me. And, you know, my dad is diabetic and diabetes is in my family. And just no one ever thought that, like, there's an issue here. Every time I go to the nutritionist, it was just like, blame, blame, blame. You got to get this together. When I go to a new doctor and I tell them I have type two diabetes, mark it down. They'd be like, wow, like, what did you do to yourself? So finally, last year I had moved to Philly. I was like, you know what? I'm going to be in the area for a while. I'm going to just establish a relationship with an endocrinologist. I went to a doctor at Penn Medicine and I'm telling her about all my symptoms. And she's like, well, why don't you tell me about your family history a little bit? So I tell her my dad has diabetes. He, would, he was diagnosed when he was in his early 20s. It was type 2. Eventually, he was put on insulin later in life. But he still isn't quite a type 1. I'm kind of confused about it. And then I told her his dad was diagnosed with diabetes when he was like 19 and went to sign up for the Korean War. And his dad 
diabetes wasn't a concept at that time, but he went blind early in life and he always had issues with his like energy levels. So my doctor is like, duh, you have this condition called MODY, M-O-D-Y. And it stands for mature, what is it? Mature onset diabetes of the young. I think it's something ridiculous like that. And it's genetic and it runs in families. And so I got a genetic test. They have to look at your genes under a microscope for this mutation. And sure enough, I had it. And it occurs in 1% of diabetics, but I've also heard other stats that way more people have it and are just improperly diagnosed. But it's a whole different type of diabetes. I'm on a different medication. It behaves like type two in that you still produce insulin, but just not enough. So I'm not insulin dependent, but I was diagnosed very young. I think too, a lot of type two diabetics are insulin resistant where you make insulin, but your cells reject it. And I don't have that problem either. But like, it's just so frustrating because this whole time I was literally dying. My whole body was being dying, was, was dying. And I was being starved at fat camp. I was restricting, even though my blood sugar was low and my body was begging me to eat. I put myself in danger and I put all this stress on my body and I went through a cookie diet for God's sake. And I, why? So I could be like more thin than I already was. And so I have, even as a person who I describe myself as like thin passing, like I'm not a thin person, but I'm not going to get yelled at in public for like eating a croissant, you know, but I empathize so strongly with anyone who is in a fatter body because just the level of like dismissal and the expectation that you are going to put yourself through literal hell just so that you can have a smaller body. It's, it's so absurd. And you know, now when I think back on my camp experience, it's extra horrifying because here's the thing, like I had diabetes, so I really struggled at camp. I had a lot of issues maintaining proper blood sugar levels, but even for people who aren't diabetic, I mean, my diabetes makes me more sensitive to that stuff, but everybody at camp was going through this. Everybody was being starved. Everyone was insufficiently energized and it's, you know, my version is just a little more dramatic, but yeah, I, I got that diagnosis recently and how fitting that for the last three years, I've been really embedded in this whole like diet culture scene, thinking about bodies, thinking about food, thinking about energy. So it's, it's a diagnosis. Honestly, I was glad to get, cause a lot of things make sense that didn't make sense before, but yeah, I'm, I feel like some of your listeners may have this condition. So guys, go talk to your doctors about this. You might not be a type two. It might not be your diet. That's super helpful to hear. I appreciate you telling us your story. And I do think that there were definitely medical conditions not being properly diagnosed or managed with so many of the children there, not just mental totally. health, but also, you know, all the physical health things that we're going through. So that Absolutely. said, we know, we know there were problems. We've, <laughs> we've spent two hours talking about the problems. I uh -huh. do try to leave our listeners on a positive note with some actions they can take towards being the best versions of themselves and for others. Yeah. I already shared some of mine in part one. So I'm going to 
revisit that fat phobia drives us to focus on weight. And if we truly want to help kids, we need to build their confidence and self-esteem, teach them to love and cook with real food, celebrate body diversity, and be active and engage in life with them. I will Mm -hmm. also add to that list from when I originally wrote it in, I think was 2019, that empowering them is really important. And I truly Mm -hmm. don't think that my experience would have been what it was if I believed in myself more, if I had self-trust and felt empowered. That's why I think it's important to always tell kids, not just that you love them and are proud of them, but encourage them to be proud of themselves. So that Mm. external validation isn't something that they're seeking later in life and that they can have that self-confidence inherent in themselves. I'm curious, totally, Kelsey, what your thoughts are on what are some ways that if someone is listening to the show and came to it because it's a weight loss for kids in the title and are now horrified and don't want uh-huh. to put their children on a diet, what are some ways that we can positively have an impact on the well-being of our children? Yeah, well, don't send them to fat camp. Let's start there. <laughs> We're not going to be doing that. I mean, I also think parents need to educate themselves. A lot of parents rely on medical doctors to steer them in the right direction. And the problem with that is that there's so much fat phobia in the medical field. Like there is so much. The fact that we even weigh children and we, well, I mean, I guess, okay, weighing children, there's a time and a place, right? We want to make sure they're growing. But the fact that we, that we use the BMI chart still is just, it's such an archaic, and the BMI chart was never even intended to be used on the human body, but that's a whole other thing. You know, you really have to be like careful and be very selective with your doctors. And you want to make sure that you're working with people who are aware of all this diet culture stuff and who maybe have some certifications, like a health at every size certification or some kind of like, some kind of expertise in working in more body positive spaces. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't really know what the answer is as far as if, you you know, if your kid is struggling with weight, it's really tough. It's definitely tough because we live in a culture that is not, it's not easy to be that way. And I think like you said, Stacey, just making sure that they're as confident as possible and show showing them being an example of confidence for them can go such a long way and talking to them and being understanding with them. And I think too, a big, a big part of the issue is we don't want kids to see weight or exercise or nutritious food in a negative light. You know, like you always want exercise to be a positive thing. You don't want to use it as punishment. You don't want to use it to work off food. A really helpful thing that a nutritionist told me when I was thinking I was a type 2 diabetic is he said, don't worry about not eating sweets. He was like, obviously, you can't control yourself around sweets. Why don't you try to eat as many vegetables as you do cupcakes in a given day? And I was like, oh, my God, that's great. It's so much easier to add things than it is to take things away and to restrict. That was useful for me. Yeah, I 
totally agree on the adding things. I quite frequently ask my children not what they've eaten, but rather, have you had a vegetable today? Right? Like, I don't right. want to shame about whatever choices you made leading up to this point. And right. I joke with them, let's not get scurvy. Let's have a vegetable. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. I, I think that the idea of really truly positivity in kids comes, it's never too late for that. And it's never too early for that. I, I will say, mm-hmm. you know, I have been, I have definitely made mistakes in the diet culture that I built our family on early on with being so steeped in it myself. And right. I can't undo the past and living in shame and guilt isn't going to change that. So mm-hmm. I do what I can now to ensure that my children know that they are loved, that they have full access to whatever it is they need and the hope that, you know, that desire to binge after so long of restriction isn't something that they find they still have later in life. The other thing that we do having nothing related to food, because I do think that most of this work actually has nothing to do with food and is really driven. Mm -hmm. For example, with my trauma work with foster care and eating disorders, you never address the, for example, bulimia with food itself. If someone is Mm -hmm. binging or avoiding food, addressing the food itself actually causes more problems in terms of like doubling down on that because the Mm -hmm. it's usually driven from control and so if you're trying to control them or the food it's only going to create more problems versus if I address it from the perspective of you can make whatever choices you want on your own body I love you, I support you, and I'm here for you. That's an entirely different message. And the more time I spend and the more positive messages we have, the more the outcome is better. And one of the things that we do as a whole family to kind of build that in is when I see people start to be negative with one another, like bickering at the dinner table or wanting to avoid family dinner or different kinds of things like that is we have this thing where we go around and we have to say something nice to somebody else about themselves. And then like you have to hear in our family, there's six people. So you have to hear five people tell you something positive about yourself and you have to say something positive about five people. And just the act of all of that positivity immediately changes the dynamic. We're always giggling by the end and laughing because somebody will say something (laughs) like, Oh, Finn, I love your long, glorious, luscious, long hair. And you know, like we, you know, laugh about that kind of stuff in it. That kind of reframing in terms of, you know, dinner is looking like a nightmare and people are, you know, not wanting to eat the food or, you know, there's issues around the food and food avoidance, all these things that I've experienced. Like when we make it about something else, the walls come down and people relax and then they can truly just eat to nourish themselves versus the other emotions that are kind of like steeped in whatever's happening. So. I hope that that's helpful, listeners. I know we've talked about a lot. This week, we're going to do the Patreon a little bit different because Matt is going to be listening to this for the first time. And I honestly haven't even fully told him the the depths of some of the things that Kelsey and I have talked about. So I'm going to do the Patreon with Matt in terms of what did he think. And as someone who has not experienced dieting and weight as a child or a teenager, how, what is his perception in terms of 
both my experience and as it applies to our children. And it, the Patreon is also a great way to ask questions. So if you loved the show that we create and produce ourselves, the Patreon is a great way to support the show, but so is just leaving a review or hitting that follow or subscribe button in whatever podcast app you're using so that others can find us too. And I would also encourage you to connect with Kelsey. I will put links in the show notes for you, but it's KelseyAmeliaSnelling.com is your website. The best place mm-hmm. to kind of learn more about the Camp Shame documentary is at FatCampDoc.org. And again, we've put a list of those resources into the show notes for you. And I want to thank you for your continued compassion and consideration and hearing us out on these topics. We really appreciate your willingness to be open and change, hopefully reducing the harm that this causes our future generations and know that no one is perfect, but in listening, learning and unlearning, we can become better versions of ourselves. Kelsey, is there anything I forgot or that you want to remind our listeners on before we thank you and part ways for all of your work on this topic so far? Well, I am interested to hear what Matt thinks. (laughs) I'm very excited about that. But yeah, I just want to remind everyone, if you do head over to the website, fatcampdoc.org, there's a few things that you can do. You can follow the project. You can donate, which is always appreciated. You can share a story about Camp Shane or another fat camp that you have an experience with, and that's totally anonymous. Nothing you say can be used until I get you on camera and actually have a release form signed. And if you have any photos or videos of camp, that is super helpful. There's a possibility that we can compensate you financially for that stuff. So send me a little message. And that's, I think that's all. You covered everything, Stacey. Thank you. And thank you, Kelsey. Thank you, listeners. And we'll be back again next week. the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.